Over the past year, almost year and a half, we have been considering the topic of focusing on the Christ. We began that uh, looking at the shadow of Christ in the Old Testament, as Don, you were talking about that this morning in your testimony, the, the importance of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament as well. It's a, um, it is there for our learning, is what the, the New Covenant says, in that we see so many illustrations and types of Christ in the Old Testament. God was laying out the the fact that Jesus Christ was going to come, Messiah was going to come, and what he would be like when he came as well. And so we looked through the Old Testament looking at the shadow of Christ, and then we transitioned into the life of Christ. And then at the end of last year, looking at the return of Christ, we began this year looking at the reign of Christ and transitioning looking at the spiritual reign of Christ into how Christ is supposed to reign in my life. And if that's the case, then when Christ is residing and reigning in your heart, it will be reflected in your life. And so, therefore, what we say, how we live, is going to be a reflection of who or what is living in our hearts. And so, as we begin then to look at the reflection of Christ, we begin looking at that reflection in our lives. And we saw that Jesus said, right off the bat, that out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth will speak. And so, the very first reflection that we looked at is our words, our speech. And that is what I say and how I say things How is that reflective of Christ? And is Christ reflected in my life, in my speech? Secondly, we began then to look at our finances, because Jesus said again, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so one of the the primary ways that you can find out what, um, what is in somebody's heart is not only what they're talking about, but also where they're spending their money. You know, you, you put your money where your mouth is. We know it, okay? And so where your mouth is, is where your heart is. You see the kind of the progress that goes on there? And so we looked then at that for over um, a period of five or six weeks, and we considered the principles of, of stewardship and that uh, biblical principles of, of finances, and then we looked at the acquisition, making of money, and what the Bible says about that, and how we can reflect Christ in the principles that we apply to earning money. But then we looked as well as the spending the money, the uh, appropriation of the finances, and we saw that God, as in everything, should be the number one priority, and that God says that the tithe, the first tenth, is his. And that if you don't give that, and this isn't Bob talking, this is the word of God speaking, that if you don't do, that's stealing. Okay? And so that that belongs to God. And then he also wants the first fruits. He wants the first portion. But then beyond that, there were also the the offerings that were to be given as well that was beyond that. And we, we saw how even in the Old Testament, when they took up the offering for the for the tabernacle, that they eventually had to come and tell the people what? Stop. They were given too much. And so they had too much, and so they needed the people need, were refrained from from giving. Okay. Well, last week we began looking at the the next phase of, of of the reflection, and that is how we reflect Christ in our relationships. And we began looking at Ephesians chapter five, where very clearly um, we're, we're, we go to that primary relationship, the very first relationship that God had established in the garden, and that is the marital relationship. In the very beginning, when God created Adam, he said it was not good for Adam to be alone. And so he brought all the animals before Adam so that Adam would know that he was alone, okay, and that everybody, every other animal had a mate, but he didn't. And so then God put Adam asleep, and he made for, took out his side from his rib, and he made Eve, and he brought Eve to him. And the two then were one flesh, okay? And so... So God made this marriage relationship and then said what? It is, it is good. It is good. Okay? 
Now, God did that, I believe, not only to meet a, a need for man, but as God is able, as the, the orchestrator, the, um, the conductor of the symphony of life, as he is also the weaver of the tapestry of life, so whichever illustration you want to look at, he almost always has numerous things going on at one time in every decision that he makes and everything that he gets going on. And so not only did he make a helper for me as man, okay, knowing that I was incomplete without my, my wife, and that's not to say if God chooses for you to be single that you're, you're incomplete, okay, but that was God chose, and he chose it for a purpose, and that was to, to do what? To be fruitful and to multiply, to make godly seed unto him. But even more so, that we see as Paul, as he reveals by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there was as well in that decision, in that, that, that creative act, a picture that, that he was going to establish from the beginning, and that picture, that reflection, was going to be the illustration of Christ and the church. And so last week we looked at how wives were supposed to submit unto their husbands as unto the the Lord. And we said that we'll talk about this more later when we talk about the, the, the corporate reflection as, of the church, but that the wife was supposed to, in doing that, in making her submission as unto the Lord, not unto the man, she was supposed to submit unto the man, but she was supposed to submit unto the man, knowing that ultimately that authority structure pointed back to Christ, and that her ultimate submission was not to the man, but unto Jesus, unto, the, unto, unto God. And so that in doing that, though, she was then reflecting the church in how the church was supposed to be submitting unto Christ. And so, ladies, again, just as we transition out of you and into the men, they ask that question, if people would, would try to, to consider what the church is supposed to look like in its relationship with Christ, and they had you for the example, what would they think about the church in that relationship? Well, we ended last week talking to the men um, as well in that saying that for us as men, we're commanded um, to, to love our wives, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But as we saw in First John, that we love God because why? He first loved us. And you know, in that, in that love, we're told in verse 17 of, of, of 1 John 4, that, that perfect love casts out fear. And, and the woman down here at the end of in, uh, verse 33 says, Nevertheless, let each one of you particular so love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And remember, we talked about that word respect really being phobeo in the Greek, which means to fear. But that if the husband is... Loving his wife, and as we're going to talk about this morning, as Christ loved the church, then perfect love will what? Cast out fear. And that there is no reason for a wife to submit in fear, but rather she should be able to submit out of love and adoration and admiration for he who is her head, at least here physically on the earth. And so today we want to to continue looking at then the husband reflection, the husband's reflection of, of Christ. And what we see very clearly is that that husband's reflection can be summed up as the wife's reflection was summed up with submission. The husband's reflection can be summed up with the word love. Love. Now, guys, this is a hard thing for us. Straight off the bat, it's hard because we are very physical. We're not relational, necessarily, in and of ourselves. We're very physical. 
And what God has called us to do is to be able to get out of the flesh and into the spirit. And to be able to put on that mind of Christ, which we're going to see as we go on. And so, just as we look at the women, and we understand that that's a struggle for women in today to submit unto their husbands, okay, in a world that's telling them to, to, to think only about themselves and to, you know, burn the, you know, and take their own stand. And we're in a day where the world is flaunting the flesh in the eyes of man and causing us to, to be distracted. And God has called us to holiness is the same way he's called the woman to holiness. And he's called us to be able to walk in the spirit and not in the lust of our flesh. Okay? And so here we are. We're told to love our wives. But in this, he's going to give us two illustrations, both pointing back to one primary illustration you'll see in a moment. But the first of these illustrations is that we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And so you should ask yourself, guys, though you may not want to necessarily in the flesh, but in the spirit, I'm sure you do. And that is, how did what? Christ loved the, the, the church. Well, the first thing is that we know from 1 John chapter 4 again, is that his love was first. You didn't love God, and, and, and so therefore God looked at you and said, wow, you know, this guy really adores me. He's really worshiping me. I think that I'm going to send my son to die for him. Rather, we're told in Ephesians chapter 1 that before the foundations of the world were laid, Christ died for us. That means that before he ever created Adam, he had already deemed that Adam was going to need a what? A savior, a redeemer. Which meant that he knew before he ever made man, that man would what? Would mess up. That he would disobey him, that he would disrespect him, that he would dishonor him. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God commended his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, is how it says. Well, what do we know, then, about his love? Well, his love was not only first, it was what? Sacrificial. The word is paradidomai um, in the Greek. You say, well, big deal. Okay. But what it means is, is that to betray, surrender, to give, or to yield oneself up. In other words, he didn't have to do it. When the guards came into the garden... He wasn't taken against his will. He chose freely to sacrifice himself for the church. Guys, first of all, if your wife is going to love you, you got to what? Love her. And if you really, really love her, it's going to be betrayed with sacrificial love, that you are going to give yourself willingly for her. That means sacrifice. That means that you're going to give up. Jesus could have. He didn't have to die for me. Who was he? He was God. He was the ruler of the universe. If he wanted, he could have annihilated me. I would have never even known that he was ever existed. I'd just be gone. And he could do what? Start a new model. But he chose selflessly, willingly, to come to the earth, to hang on the cross. Now, even take this for a moment. Did he have to die on a cross? Now, don't answer me prophetically for a moment. Just answer me practically. Did he have to do it that way? No, not at all. What determined that he was going to die sacrificially on a cross? His own prophecy, his own declarations, 
And so, though he had determined before the foundations of the world that he would be the propitiation for my sins, he could have determined to do it any way he chose to. Does that make sense? He could have said, you know, I mean, those of you who, who struggle with diabetes or hypoglycemia or whatever, you probably have a little pinprick thing in your bathrooms, right? And so you put this little thing up there and you push the button and it, and it shoots a little needle down and it pricks your finger and you take a little um, blood sample and you, you check it out. You tracking with me on this one? Okay. And so if the forgiveness of sins is, is not without the shedding of blood, then in a sense when you pick your, prick your finger, you are what? Shedding blood, right? And so if, if he wanted to, he could have said, well, okay, we'll keep the shedding of blood thing and I'll just what? Shed some blood for you. He could have done that. That was his choice. I mean, and again, and I've said in the past, if he, if he wanted to say that you had to climb to the, to the top of Mount Rushmore and grab one of the thousand flags that were up there and the first thousand who got up there would be what? Saved. He could have done that. Cause he's what? He's God. That's exactly right. And so God could choose to do whatever God chooses to do. But God chose to make the way to demonstrate his love for us the ultimate way of the demonstration of that love, and that he would sacrifice himself for us. In John 13, we read that before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Note that he's not going to die, he's going to be crucified, but he's going to what? He's going to, it's like a flight. His departure's at hand, you know? And uh, having loved his own who were in the world, he what? He loved them till the, to the end. He loved them to the end. Now, you know, as well as I do, you know, we've talked about this a lot, the, the various words in the Greek for the word love. Okay? There is story gay, which we don't talk a whole lot about, but it's family kind of love. It's, you know, within a family. You know, blood is thicker than water kind of things, you know. But eros is selfish love. I love pepperoni pizza. Until what? Pepperoni starts giving me heartburn. And then all of a sudden, I don't want to eat pepperoni pizza anymore. I'm going to eat cheese pizza. You know, whatever. Okay? And so, that's eros. That's erotic. We use the term erotic. And a lot of times, we put that on a sensual sense. Okay? But it doesn't necessarily have to go that way. But that's why it gets tagged over there. Because it's all about what? Self. It's all about me. It's not about the other person. That kind of love is all about me. Well, then there's phileo, like Philadelphia. That's we term a lot of times as brotherly love. But what that means is that I love you, and I'll do anything for you, except if what? There's only enough for me or you. It's for me. I hope you find some. But agapao, which is this love, is this selfless love, which says that if there's only enough for me or you, it's it's yours. It's yours. It's that ultimate final commitment kind of love, that you make a willful decision to, to place your affection upon somebody else and to place a commitment in that relationship. And that's what God did for us. He committed himself regardless of me. Regardless of how I would act, that he would set his affection upon me. Think about these guys that he loved. And he loved to the end. Who was Peter? Peter was the guy that he already said to what? Get thee behind me, Satan. Because you're caring for the things of the flesh and not the things of God. Peter's the guy that he knew, because he told him in, in the parallel passage of Luke, that before the cock crows, you're going to what? Deny me three times. But yet, having loved his own, he loved him to the 
end. Knowing that Peter was going to deny him, he still hung on the cross for him. As I mentioned to the women last week, and so to you men, we all men have one thing in common, all you men who are married, we all have one thing in common. You married an imperfect woman. I know, don't tell your wife. I'm hoping they're not listening to me at this moment. Anyways, but just as I said to them, they married the imperfect model, so you married an imperfect model. The, the fact is that every single one of us, male and female, adults and children, all have one thing in common sitting here, that we're all what? Sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we prove it daily. I'd like to tell you, again, that I am the perfect model of a husband. That I love my wife in and out 100%, 125%, you know, above and beyond. Like Christ loved the church. But I put tape over her mouth so she couldn't tell you otherwise. Okay? You know that's not true. I can't love my wife like Christ loved the church because I'm what? Not Christ. But my desire, and this is where we got to go, guys. Is it honestly, before God, is it honestly your desire to love your wife like Christ loved the church? Are you willing to love them at any cost and to the end? In John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. We talk a lot about heroics, about men in the military or even in the um, fire department or police department as we think of 9-11, you know, that really brought a heightened awareness to the heroics of, of many different uh, aspects of our society, of men and women who are willing to lay down their life for somebody else. But most heroes will tell you that it wasn't a what? A cognitive decision that they thought about. They just what? They did it. They just reacted. Okay? And I don't want to downplay those heroics. Okay? Those are important. That's important. Very, very important. I'm not trying to downplay and, 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 and water those down. But here's the question. If you had time to think about it, would you do it? Probably not. And, and not only that, if you not only had time to think about it, if you had time to think about the person you were going to do it for, would you do it? See, it's one thing that it's my unit, these are my buddies, and some, you know, and, and I just do it because it's, it's reactionary, this is what has to be done. And I may do it even for a good man. Isn't that what Romans tells me? Scarcely for a good man will somebody die. But God commended his love for us in what, what? While we were yet sinners. And so now I look at these group of people who are mocking me, spitting on me, who want to kill me, who want nothing to do with me, who like to um, dispossess me, and those are the guys that I'm going to go fling myself on the hand grenade for. Or do I say, ha! They got what was coming to them. I'm out of the bunker. (laughs) Men, that illustration then is talking about your wife. Are you willing to lay down your life for your wife? Honestly, if it came down to God said you or her, you, you or her, would you say, take me? Take me. Is your love that sacrificial? 
Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 3 for the context, but clearly verse 5 is the the verse that we're looking at and, and, and beyond. And in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, we read, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, that are not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That mind of Christ that we're told to take up is split out into two areas. Considering the value of others as being more important than your own, and considering the needs of others as being more important than your own. And so, men, as I'm supposed to be loving Christ as Christ loved the church, or loving my wife as Christ loved the church, this gives me a picture, an illustration of his mind when it came to why he would, he would willingly lay aside deity to take on the appearance of a man so that he could be humbled and to die for me, that he could sacrifice. What was the motivation that drove Jesus to sacrifice himself for the church? First of all, he considered me more important than himself. That is incredible. We talked about, in the past, about the value system and how the world likes to place worth on people. And the CEO of the organization clearly is of greater worth than the person who is spinning the yarn down at the, at the, at the distaff. That's what the world thinks, yes? The people at the distaff can be what? A dime a dozen. Just get another uh, you know, um, minimum wage employee. But the CEO of the company needs to realize that his company will only be as successful as what? The person at the distaff is. That's exactly right. And there is no difference in worth of individuality. There's just a difference in position within the structure. And so just as the head of Christ is God and the head of man is Christ and the head of woman is man, and so there may be a hierarchical structure, there is no difference between us what? Value-wise. And yet, we're told that those higher, quote-unquote, in that hierarchical structure of authority need to see themselves as what? Less important, less of less value than the ones who are beneath them. Is it, and I always mess this name up, but I don't know why I mess this up because I talk about it a lot. Is it Maslow, his, the, the hierarchy of needs? Yes. When we come to Jesus, I don't know if you guys have ever studied the, uh, um, the psychology or abnormal psychology or whatever. I was a case study for abnormal psychology. And, um, but anyways, that was a joke. Anyways, um, you guys look at me like, oh yeah, I've got to believe that one. And uh, anyways, um, but you take Maslow's needs, and, and the basis of the needs is man's survival, you know, and you flip it upside down, and and that's Christian, the Christian worldview. 
I should, if I have the mind of Christ, consider myself of the least value of anybody else on the earth. Men, if you do not see your wives as having greater value than you, I believe you're in sin. You don't have the mind of Christ. That's an imperfection. You can say it however you want to. It's a little mar in the thing. It's just a little bit of dross. I call that being short of the glory of God. God equates being short of the glory of God with what? Sin. And we like to shade things, and we like to have them look like, no, they're just a little bit of imperfections. This isn't sin. It's sin. It's okay. God knows that you're a what? A sinner. It's not going to be a shock to him when you admit it. And it honestly won't be a shock to anybody else here, although everybody else here likes to pretend that they're not sinners either. And so they're, oh, I can't believe you're like that. You know, but there's no temptation that's overtaking you, but such is what? Common to man. We all, men, struggle with the same thing. We're all selfish. And God has called us to come out of that flesh, to come out of that selfishness, to take on the mind of Christ, and to literally consider my bride as more valuable than myself. And I know that there are times when I don't do that. And I am supposed to consider her needs as being more important than my needs. When it comes to vegetables, I struggle with that. Because it's not a need. It's just a desire. It's her flesh that wants to have green beans, not not necessity. Anyways, that is a struggle. She loves green beans. I hate green beans. And so there are times we eat what? Green beans. Okay? Now, honestly, wives, you're going to hate this one. But as the head of the house, as the ruler of the roost, as as the man, could I honestly demand that we never have green beans in my house again? I could. She wouldn't listen to me. Shh. My wife would. My wife is the perfect picture of the submissive wife who's submitting unto me as Christ to the church. Listen, I go home with her, okay? So, you say that about your wife too, okay? If you're a smart man. Anyways, but here's the deal. What kind of a loving leader would I sacrificially be if that's what I did? I wouldn't. Would I be considering her value as being more important than mine? Would I be considering her needs as being more important than mine? The answer is no. No, not at all. And so, men, I want to challenge you, as I challenge myself, okay? And I, I'm, looky, I understand that I'm going to fall short. But it is my hunger, it is my desire, it really is, to grow in that love for her. To reflect Christ more and more and more. And I hate it when I blow it. And I blow it a lot. My flesh gets t- takes over too many times. But if you're not willing to admit it, it's kind of like AA, you know? And we call it um, FA, Flesh Anonymous, okay? And, you know, it, but if you're not willing to admit that you're, you're an alcoholic, you'll never overcome what? Alcoholism. If you're not willing to admit that you're a sinner or, or struggling with your flesh, you'll never what? You'll never find victory. And we have to be willing, guys, to confess that we struggle in the area and we need to ask Christ for his strength and help. He did it. Willingly. And we can too. 
though struggling, we can do it. Colossians 3.19, just including this section, says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter, bitter toward them. See, what happens when I don't value them higher than me, or them, her, I don't have multiple, I'm not a Mormon, <laughs> no Mormon here. Um, anyways, I, I, look at the, I look at the wars between Jacob's four and I go, whew, I don't know. I don't think I'll. Anyways, but <laughs> if, if I am not valuing Marcia as being greater than me, her value being greater than me, and I'm not considering her needs as, better, as more important than me, then what happens when I do something for her rather than for me? Ultimately, I'm going to be aggravated about it. And that aggravation over time will begin to be what? Bitterness. Do you know that is one of the roots of the destruction of many marriages? I've done a lot of marital counseling over the years. It's amazing to me the bitterness that has been allowed to build up in a relationship. And it's ugly when you prick the boil. And too many times, when you get to that point, people don't want you to prick the, the boil. Because you know what happens when you prick the boil? And all that gangrene starts coming out, and ugliness? You begin to realize that it's not just them. See, bitterness always focuses on who? The other person. It's not on me. It's what they did to me. It's what I am... Losing because of them. And so if your sacrifice that you're doing for them is not selfless, is not Christ-like, then eventually you sacrificing for them will turn out to be bitterness. Bitterness. And so I, I challenge you again. Where is your love to your wives? Is it first? I always love when guys tell me, I'm struggling with, with my, my wife. Why are you struggling? She doesn't love me. I'll always, I take out my, my little notepad and I write him a, prescri- a prescription. And the prescription says, go home, go into your bathroom, turn on the light, look in the mirror, point your finger at the guy that you see and say, it's all your fault. Because if you love your wife like Christ loves the church, most, most statistics are what, Matt? Made up on the... The spot, right? So here we go. I'm making this statistic up on the spot. I just want to be honest, okay? I'm not lying. I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing out here. But just based upon the things I've read in my own, my own uh, experience, 90%, 90% of women or more are going to respond to that love from the husband. I understand that there are women who are abnormal. And, and they're so in their flesh. But when a woman is loved by a man, like Christ loves the church, one who is willing to lay down his life and all of his desires for her, to meet her needs, she can't help but submit unto him lovingly, wanting to come alongside. Men, put it this way. If you've been in the military, how many of you guys have been in the military? Okay. Have you had multiple commanders? Were there some of those commanders that you're willing to, to follow into battle no matter what? And some of those commanders that you're willing to shoot in the back? 
Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. That's the difference. Which commander are you in your relationship with your wife? Is she willingly wa- wanting to submit unto you and follow you wherever because she loves you and she, she respects your authority because she knows that you as a leader are sacrificing for her? Or would she willingly shoot you in the back and, and hope that God would give her a new model that was better than you? Okay? So, what else do we know about his love? His love was sacrificial. We're told that he loved her that he might what? Sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. We read John 17 this morning on purpose. Because Jesus, John 17, we talk about the Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But that's not the Lord's Prayer. That's the model prayer. That's Jesus said, pray this way. But if you want to know what the Lord's Prayer is, that's John 17. That's when he prayed. And that's when he prayed for his disciples. And in that prayer, we're not going to turn there. We read that this morning. He prayed for two things for his disciples. Do you remember what those two things were? He prayed, first of all, for their sanctification. He desired the sanctification for the the church. And note how that sanctification is going to come. It's going to come from the washing of the water by the word. In John 17, he said to sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's consistent. It's all one and the same. The Bible is consistent throughout. How is your wife going to be sanctified, set apart, made holy for the, for the glory of God? Through the word of God. Whose responsibility? Men, men, whose responsibility is it to encourage, support, exhort, lead your wife in the area of sanctification through the word? Yours. I am so frustrated with the church, with women leading. And many times women are leading not because they're usurping authority, it's because men are not leading. When I teach at Awana conferences, I'm very clear. I'm very honest, very bold. And I say, if your church has a woman who is your Awana commander, that I consider it as a sign of judgment upon your church. Because that tells me that there's not a man who's willing to stand up and be a spiritual leader in that church. That doesn't mean that a woman can't, can't serve. But if she's usurping authority over a man and she's leading the men, and there's not a man in that church who's willing to be the leader, there's a problem with the church. And people say, well, what about Deborah? What about Deborah? I challenge you to go back and read the account of Deborah in the book of Judges. Do you know how it says that Deborah rose up? A mother. A mother. Because there wasn't a man who was willing to stand up in Israel that God chose a mother of Israel to condemn the men, to be the leader. And even she, when God spoke to her, she went to Balak to say what? God wants you to lead the men into war. And he said, only if I can hide behind your skirt. Only if you'll go with us. And she said, fine, I'll go. But know this, that God is going to take the honor and the glory from you and going to give it to a woman. And that's when Jael drove the tent peg through Sisera's head. So that Jael would get the glory and not Balak. Barak. I'm messing up. Balak was the Balak was the false prophet. Barak was the general. Anyways, so Barak. But you get what I'm saying. 
People always want to look, oh, Deborah was a judge. Yeah, Deborah was a judge only because men failed to do what they were supposed to do. Men, you are the spiritual leader of your home. Does your family have family devotions and do you lead them? Now, again, I'm not saying I'm the perfect model here. I know I'm the pastor and the pastor's family is always perfect. Don't put me on a pedestal. If you ever put me on a pedestal, you will, you will be sorely displeased and sorely upset because I'm a marred image. But again, it is my hunger, it is my desire to see each of my children to grow up to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, all their mind. I don't care if they grow up in nothing personal. If you ever have worked with the, with the, um, with the garbage companies, my daughter did. But I don't care if my kids grow up to, to work, ride the back of a garbage truck. Whatever the foulest job you can picture is, if they love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, all their mind, all their strength, then I've succeeded as a dad. But if my son or my daughter grows up to be a lawyer, a brain surgeon, um, the President of the United States, the, the, the Secretary General of the UN, whatever you want to put it, and they don't love the Lord, then I have failed as a dad. I know that sounds hard. And again, it's okay if we fail because what? We're sinners. And we are going to what? Fail. But if that's the case, then what do I do? I give it to the Lord. I leave it there. Does that make sense? I can't change my past. And I have blown it. Even this past week, right, Andrew? Did I blow it this week? You you blew it earlier this week. Remember when you blew it? And did I blow it too? I did. And did I have to ask you to apologize to me? I did. Okay? I didn't totally... I, 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 no, I'm sorry. I asked, I asked him to forgive me. Thank you. Yeah, I asked him to forgive me for, for my, my failure. Okay? He had to ask me to forgive him, but equally I had to ask him to forgive me because even in my response, though he was wrong and he initiated the wrong, my response to him wasn't entirely godly. And so I had to ask him to forgive me for that part that wasn't godly. Why? Because I want to set the example for him of a godly dad. Does that make sense? And I want him to know at that moment that the overage wasn't what? Wasn't godly. With your wife, guys, are you willing to go back to your wife and ask her to forgive you when you blow it? Honey, the words I used right then were not honoring to you and didn't reveal someone who's loving you like Christ of the church. And it was not only a sin to you, it was a sin even more so to my God. Will you please forgive me? We, not just, I'm sorry. Sorry for saying it. See, sorry is easy. Sorry. And then you just go on flippantly. Now it's on what? It's on them to deal with the hurt that you just caused. I'm sorry. Will you please Forgive me now places them where? Above me. And now I have to wait for them to do what? Bring the reconciliation, the ultimate reconciliation to the relationship. I have admitted that I'm the one who broke the trust. I'm the one who, who severed at this moment the relationship. And I'm the one who's confessing it and I'm waiting for you 
to restore me. Good. Okay, forgiveness. Um, um, I'm saying this because of the tape as well, because sometimes it doesn't pick up from there. Um, what we're saying is that a definition for forgiveness and that um, what was heard was that it's um, not taking up your right to exact punishment, if you would, upon somebody else. Um, and yes, that would be good. That would be good. The, the idea of it is that that I am rescinding all feelings toward him. That doesn't mean I'll never what? Remember it. But it means that when upon my remembrance of it, I will seek to do what? Set it aside. That's exactly right. And not hold it against you. That's the key. I'm not going to hold it against you. And so how many times, I mean, I mean, honestly, in my own life, I can say I forgive you, but then I have to do what? I have to change my attitude at that moment. I have to go before the Lord and say, okay, God, now I need to what? I need It needs to be taken away, so now I can do what? Not just with Marsha, but maybe with my kids or whatever. Now I'm going to treat them like nothing ever what? Happened. And that's the hardest part. Okay? We've got to move on for the time here. Not only does he desire her sanctification, her setting apart, but in what we were discussing as well, he desires her, her unity. And so that goes along with the sanctification thing and this reconciliation thing. I desire oneness with my wife. I do. I hate it when there's something between us. And, and I, not forever, I don't mean it that way, that sounds awful, but I think Marcia sometimes probably thinks, wow, good grief, Bob. I'm asking if I sense anything, like maybe that she's not right with me for some reason. I'm going, did, I, did I do something to offend you? Did I do something to upset you? I mean, you know, I know in some parts, I mean, I'm, I may be probably not godly in my, my thought process on it. You know, like, it must be something on her, you know, but I want to at least know what I did so I can bring it to her attention that she's wrong. And, um, but, but I want that unity. I, I mean, I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. I, I mean, being a pastor is one of the hardest things for me, meeting people and talking to people. And I mean, if you ever see me go into a corner and just be sitting there, it's because, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm reclusive. I'm getting into my own little, I'm, Marcia always thought it was silly until she saw me once. I mean, I just went in this shell and I was just, I didn't want to talk to anybody. And, and by the end of a Sunday, I mean, I am just totally drained. And that's why some of these jobs I do are great because, you know, you start sanding walls and stuff like that and you're all by yourself, you know, just me and God. And, um, but that's why she's so important to me. But I still want what? Even though I'm, I'm introverted, I still want friendship. I want fellowship. And Marcia is that. I remember putting a sign on the car when we got married. Today I married my, my friend. I tell you I married my friend. And, and that's it. I mean, I appreciate you guys. We have good friendship. But Mike McGowan was probably the best friend I ever had in my life. And we were honest. When they moved to Oklahoma, that, that in time, what would happen? would speak less and less and less. It's just, it's, it's me. My mom and dad are here. They've entered into my life um, for, for this past week, and so therefore they exist. Okay? But, it sounds awful, doesn't it? But when they go back to Pittsburgh, it's going to be very hard for me to continually remember that they exist. Okay? It's just, I'm not, I'm not saying it's right. It's just Bob. That's the way Bob is. And Bob has to continually work on that. So the, the, the one that's always in my life is my wife. Is what it should be. That's exactly right. And so, as a as a man, a godly man, who is seeking to reflect Christ in his relationship with his wife, I ought to be seeking unity with her, reconciliation with her, 
does Christ not desire that with his church? That we're always at one with him? That we can be one with each other? And we can be one with him? In order, what did he say in John 17? In order that what? The world would know. In order that the world will know. We'll talk about this more when we get to the, the corporate reflection of the body. That the world would know. The world would know. That's what it's all about. Life is all about Bob. No, it's not about Bob. It's about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That the world would know. They ought to know by my reflection of the love I have for my wife. First Peter 3 says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And yes, guys, if you're not doing it, God will hinder your prayers. Well, let's move on. Secondly, and this is real quick at the end. I mean, I knew that I'd be running out of time, so I purposely intended this to be short. That The second illustration is that as we love our, our own bodies, it says, So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes just as the Lord does the church. Well, in that, there is the, the natural side of this this illustration. It is natural for a man to love himself. You feed yourself. There's a reason, guys, you eat. And usually there's a reason you don't eat. The reason you eat is because you love yourself. And, and, and you like the taste of the food. And you want to make sure that you don't starve. And you want to make sure that you, you survive. And if you're not eating a lot, it's because you're having a problem with weight. You're like I am, you know, you're getting, whether it's the age thing, and you start getting the Dunlap disease where the belly Dunlap over the belt, and you're trying to get rid of it and, and that kind of stuff. And so you, you stop yourself from eating, not because you're just being self-sacrificial and all this kind of stuff, but because you want to take off some of the weight. It's all about me. And so that illustration is, in that same way that you love yourself and that you would nurture and cherish yourself, you ought to be treating your wife like that. You ought to love her just like you love yourself. Because no man, no one ever hated his own flesh. If they do, if you saw somebody who really hated themselves, you would say they were what? Abnormal. Okay? Guys, That's how we're supposed to love our wives. But there is a spiritual side of that as well. And the spiritual side says, Just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. This is a great mystery I speak concerning Christ and the church. And just as, and we'll talk again about this, because we're going to come to the body part, that, that as Christ then loves the body as his own body, the church, like it's his own body, so I, as the head of my wife, ought to be loving her like the body. So, guys, in the end, does your wife have a hard time with submission? The question would be then, are you loving her like Christ loved the church? If she's having a hard time with submission, I would guarantee that you're having a hard time loving her or not doing it effectively. How important to you is meeting the needs of your wife? And finally, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to meet those needs? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your... Your love, Lord, your sacrificial love for us. And that continues even to now, Lord. We know that that before the foundation of the world were laid, you, you loved us and you died for us. But even, Lord, now that we are called by your name, you are still faithful. You're still faithful to the to the promise that you have given and that you have made. Lord, I pray that though uh, we know that, that we, Lord, would not desire to sin that grace may abound but lord rather we would desire to be holy as you are holy 
For the women, I do pray, Lord, that they would desire to grow in submission to their husband, that they would reflect you to the world, Lord, not just that they would have a more peaceable life here on the earth, but, Lord, that they could be better reflections of you in this world and that they could bring greater glory to your name and to your kingdom. And, Lord, I pray the same for men, Lord, that we would love our wives like Christ of the church. Lord, that we would be able to to change the way we think, that we would repent, Lord, and that we would not think like the world, but whether we think like you, and that we would desire to place their values and their needs above that of our own in such a manner that everybody would recognize it, that our love is not selfish, that we don't love them because of what they do for us and what we can gain from them, but, Lord, we love them because we've placed our affection upon them and we consider them of greater worth than ourselves. Forgive me, Lord, as well as these others who have failed. Cleanse us, Lord, and cause us to be continually renewed in your image and likeness for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.